Welcome to Cinema Smorgasbord Presents, the films of John Singleton, the first of a series where we run the entire filmography of a particular director. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as always is the original boy in the hood, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I mean, pretty good. i very uncomfortable with that introduction, but yeah, sure, that's me. Do you not think of yourself as a boy in the hood, Liam? No, I do not. Not anymore? No, no. Mm. Why? You want to elaborate on that, or should we wait until we talk about these movies that we're going to be talking about on the show? I, I though I <clears throat> at one point in my life lived in the city, I still wouldn't necessarily think that the neighborhood that I lived in was considered the hood. Um, mm. It wasn't a wealthy neighborhood, but I, I really think, though uh, it's fallen out of favor to use the term at all, the hood definitely refers to a historically ghettoized area where through redlining and other political maneuvers uh minority groups usually african-american but other brown folks are sort of herded together uh to to create kind of a police state and Hmm. the neighborhood that i lived in in the city was a ukrainian neighborhood (laughs) mostly (laughs) known for like good ukrainian pierogies you know it was poor, definitely, but uh, we did not have the level of uh, surveillance and police violence that I think uh, you would get in, in uh, the movies we're talking about today. Do you, you and your little kid friends would be like, one of them would be like, you want to see a dead body? And you're like, no, let's get some pierogies, and that's how your day went. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, uh, there's a lot of podcasts that we do together on the Cinema Smorgasbord Network that's also featured on Cinepunks.com. And this is a project... That came out of a conversation that my wife and I were having where she very rightly mentioned that uh, despite our enthusiasm for the current uh, cultural changes that are happening in the United States and worldwide, uh, that we don't actually have any shows that focus on people of color um, outside. I mean, we have a Jackie Chan podcast and there's certainly films that we have featured already that have a strong um uh, creative influence from people of color, but nothing directly focused on a, say, a black director. Uh, and that's something that I felt like it was kind of important for us to remedy. Well, yeah. And, you know, most of our shows are focused on a particular actor and letting sure. that actor guide us through a variety of movies. Uh, and I guess we probably at some point could have come to the Yafik Koto podcast but some of the actors that, that might sound been... so awesome i would love to do yeah that. no and i'm not saying we won't do that that's very much a possibility but i think um some of the other you know one of the actors i think people would have thought of before that of course is denzel washington but famously there's three denzel washington podcasts you know what i mean mm-hmm. so uh i think it, it wasn't something that occurred to us right away because uh because we don't have to we weren't thinking about diversity. Now, as someone who's Puerto Rican, I think about it a little more than you do, white boy. But, uh, but I don't always look. I've, I've, but I I've don't always think about it. And I, and and the idea that we would want to make sure that we were covering uh, diverse folks just really hadn't occurred to me. We were choosing because it sounded neat. Like all mm-hmm. of our choices were just, oh, this sounds neat and weird and whatever. Uh, and uh, when Joe pointed it out, I was like, oh, that's really true. Uh, and, and again, I'm not saying we wouldn't have gotten to the Yafik Koto podcast or something like it on our own. Um, uh, you know, but as you pointed out, it's not that it's all whitewashed. We have Jackie Chan. We have Vic Diaz. You know, there there is it's not all white, but it is telling 
that not only do we not have a, a specifically uh, a black actor that we're covering their uh, work, um, oftentimes when we're choosing films for the other shows that aren't focused on one actor, they tend to be uh, films that are white or, or, yes. or have that bias in them because they're the, some of the most obvious ones. The, the reality is, uh, and people say this all the time, like, well, if I focus on choosing diverse this, whatever, I'm going to have to choose stuff that I don't know or that is less popular. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> because things that uh, aren't obviously white oftentimes don't get the same exposure and money and uh, distribution. And so, like, you know, John Singleton's huge director. But I think in starting with John Singleton and probably moving on to other voices from here, um, mm-hmm. the point is we're, we're going to start picking some directors to talk about who uh, aren't obvious white men, you know. And, uh, again, I think we could have gotten there eventually anyway, but I like doing it this way because we also haven't focused too much on directors. We focused on on actors performers sort of thing so it'll, yeah. be, it'll be interesting to take a director and really see the mixed bag of a director's career which is true of most directors that they start one place and they end another and uh it can be interesting to see the ways that they got there now we liam have had discussions about how we should go about kind of of going through the filmography of these directors and i mean i guess the most uh common way of doing this would be chronologically you know going through uh, john single doesn't have a huge filmography as it is and we'll go through those movies in just a minute but um but you thought it would be better for us to start by doing his first movie and his last movie and kind of bookending inward so we'd watch his second movie and his second last movie on the next time that we do this podcast and so on until we kind of meet in the middle why do you think that's the best way of going about at least in this case um i i, I think it it inevitably for most directors creates a sense of diversity so uh you know like it, it creates a multivalent sort of conversation because my fear if if we're doing double features going through someone's f- filmography chronologically we're often discussing films that are similar to each other Um, but by starting with someone's first and last, uh, we are setting ourselves up for a variety of differences. We might, in the case of John Singleton, be talking about, in my opinion, his best and worst films. Uh, but for another director, we might also be talking about their best and worst films in the opposite direction, or maybe we're talking about two films that represent very different styles, but the quality isn't their difference. It's the differences in how they make movies. In other words, it's it's a it's a method of talking about a director that makes a big assumption and that that I'm perfectly prepared for that assumption to be proven false as we do this more often. But the assumption is that artists grow, that as they do work, they change and they evolve. Uh, and so in working from the ends inward, I think it keeps our conversation about each of these uh, directors uh, from getting stale. So that we're not sort of, okay, well, these two are kind of like each other. These two are kind of like each other. But instead, it's like, okay, wow, even though we're focused on the films of this one director, we're actually getting an interesting variety by chopping up the the combinations. And obviously, we'll, we'll make some exceptions, y'all, when we're talking about uh, sequels. You know, if we were doing Joe Dante, I think we would put, uh, wait, did Joe Dante direct Romans 2? Yeah, he did. Oh, come on, Liam O'Donnell. Gosh darn it. You My know, we did just have a whole episode. I know. That. Well, that's why I stopped. I was like, wait, we just talked about this. Isn't that true? I mean, you were touching on it there, Liam, but there's a more practical reason for what you're saying as well, which is that an episode of this podcast that's covering Boys in the Hood and Abduction, 
would probably be listened to a lot more people than an episode that's covering four brothers and abduction, his last right, two exactly. films. Uh, and and you know, that might not be consistent for all directors where their most renowned and beloved films are either at the beginning or at the end of their career. But it it's not uncommon for even a beloved director to their last few films to not be necessarily their best films. Yeah, totally. Um, I... I also just like the idea of doing something that would be a little bit unexpected for a lot of directors, John Singleton included. Um, I might be more familiar with their first movie than I am their last movie or vice versa. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's creating a little bit of a unexpected thing for me as the participant of like, I wonder what this, this double feature will show us. Now uh, that then begs the question, why, if we are looking for a filmmaker to, feature in this uh, particular program and particularly we're looking for a black director why john singleton why not some other director well i think john singleton is interesting because on one hand he is known for having a certain amount of of politics you know uh, uh mm-hmm. primarily i guess you could call them identity politics but he had a political voice um and certainly at least with his first feature courted a certain amount of uh, controversy and engagement with issues uh, but I also think uh, having not seen the other movie we're covering today till recently I still knew enough to know that there was a mixed bag there that that mm-hmm. um, like any director he tried to get by making a living as well and so occasionally you direct things you know you can do uh, uh, Boys in the Hood you can do Higher Learning but eventually you might have to do Too Fast Too Furious you know um, and, and so I, I, I think that uh, that variety was interesting for me. And uh, he is someone who I think because of the power of his first film has been embraced by a lot of film audiences who I think of as pretty uh, to the left and, and, and in some cases revolutionary. And I don't know if that's justified by his whole filmography. So I thought mm. this was a cool opportunity, again, not to attack Boys in the Hood. When we get into it, you you listening audience will find that, that that we are as enamored now as I was when I saw it when it came out. But uh but but more to say like it's interesting the way that because of the fire of his first few films, he maybe still rides on that in the memory of people. And and I don't know if that's real or not. And and I don't mean that to be disrespectful to the man's memory, but just to get a, a feel of the sorts of movies someone might make throughout a career, uh and 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 uh, when one is trying probably to maintain some sense of relevance. Particularly in the 1990s, John Singleton defined a certain kind of film. Uh, and, you know, you were talking about your own sort of biographical background. Now, people who listen to our podcast, Liam, know that I grew up in Newfoundland. In Newfoundland, it was so undiverse that the films of Spike Lee and the films of John Singleton often didn't play theatrically in my province where I grew up. Uh, I remember quite vividly in the mid to late 90s, you know, seeing ads for Spike Lee movies on TV and then never arriving until they showed up on like on video store shelves. Uh, they, it was seen as there just not being an audience. And I'm not really sure how to interpret that necessarily, uh, because when you watch a movie like Boys in the Hood, even if it doesn't reflect your reality it's still extremely important to be exposed to the fact that that's someone else's reality. And apparently uh, somebody 
didn't think that was important for the people of Newfoundland at the time that I was growing up. Of course, there was also a limit of screens. Be that as it may, it seems a little bit more directed and targeted than that. So what I'm trying to get at through that is, even though I know that a lot of the movies that we're going to be talking about, particularly in the 1990s, like Poetic Justice and Higher Learning, that for... Uh, for a lot of people that they're kind of defining films in some ways in the 1990s, I have not seen these movies. Well, uh, I, I mean, uh, if I'm being honest, too, I, uh, I was encouraged to choose John Singleton because of that thought I had. I, I had just seen an anarchist friend recommend his filmography, and I thought, well, that only works for part of the filmography, really. But then sure. when we were talking about it and I thought about you, I thought, well, there are a ton of uh, of uh, African-American directors, male and female, or, you know, we could go international with black directors sure. uh, who whose output, though it might still have many sort of familiar themes, uh, is very art house, which I feel like is up your alley. Whereas when I, as soon as I thought of John Singleton, I'm like, well, that's a real fish out of water scenario for Doug. So yeah. I'll, I'll be really curious to see how he responds. You know, if, if we had done like... Uh, uh, I don't know, my, my mind's going blank, but any number of, of more indie uh, black directors, it might have been a little more familiar. Whereas what I like about John Singleton is like, again, maybe it's just his early films, but at least with some of his films, he's definitely pushing the envelope, but he's sure. pushing the envelope within the Hollywood system. I mean, Boys in the Hood was everywhere. That was not yeah. a indie darling. That was a big deal across mm-hmm. the country and so i thought well that's an interesting thing and 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 it'll be interesting to see you know for someone like me <clears throat> poetic justice is like dripping with nostalgia that's a movie i grew up with but i suspect it might not be that great so it'll be interesting to discuss it with you <laughs> for whom you have no glasses uh, whatever color they might be so uh, just to give a summary of what the films that we're going to end up covering uh, through the extent of this podcast, we're going to start, of course, today with Boys in the Hood from 1991 and Abduction, uh, John Singleton's final film in 2011. Uh, then we're going to, on the next episode, cover Poetic Justice from 1993 and Four Brothers from 2005. The next episode, Higher Learning and Too Fast, Too Furious. Uh, then Rosewood and Baby Boy. And then we have an episode that only uh, we only have one film left, which is Shaft. We might try to pair that up with something else just to make sure that uh, everything has two projects on it. But yeah, Boys in the Hood, Poetic Justice, Higher Learning, Rosewood, Shaft, Baby Boy, Too Fast, Too Furious, Four Brothers, and his final film, Abduction, which we're going to talk about today. Because, of course, John Singleton passed away uh, rather... I mean, not rather, incredibly prematurely, uh, at the age of 51 on April 17th, 2019, of a stroke. Uh, and of course, you know, he, while abduction, we're probably not going to have a lot of positive things to say about it. This was still a big-time Hollywood director who had a lot of work left to do. And, you know, he'd all recently, before his death, turned to TV work a little bit, a high-level TV work as well. So, uh, it, you know, a real shame to think about what we ha- were not able to experience with the career of John Singleton, but at least with this project, we can celebrate the work that is out there that still exists. Agreed. Liam O'Donnell. Yes. <laughs> uh, as we go along with this, I'm sure we're going to talk about some of uh, John Singleton's history as well. But what I'd like to do now is let's take our first break. Let's return and talk about his first film, the acclaimed Boys in the Hood from 1991. Join us after this. It's hard to be a saint in South Central L.A. I don't understand why you insist on learning things the hard way, Trey, but you're going to learn. How to survive in South Central, number one. 
ass of a gun, and then South Central Beach. That's how you survive. Rule number two, don't trust nobody, especially a girl with a hookless body. <laughs> Rule number three, don't take your life for granted, because it's the craziest place on the planet. Something wrong? Something wrong, yeah. It's just too bad you don't know what it is. Boys in the Hood follows the lives of three young males living in the Crenshaw neighborhood of Los Angeles and dissects questions of race, relationships, violence, and future prospects. John Singleton originally uh, developed the film as a requirement for his application to film school in 1986 and later uh, sold the script to Columbia Pictures upon his graduation in 1990 and then made a deal to film it himself at the age of 25. Uh, And the movie was an immediate critical uh, darling. It made uh, a huge uh, impact at the box office, and he was later nominated for Best Director. Uh, Again, the youngest, the first African-American director to be nominated for Best Director and the youngest ever, uh, besting uh, Orson Welles by a few years. Uh, just showing you the the kind of, 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 on the film side of things, the sort of impact that the movie Boys in the Hood made. Uh, and it's retained its reputation and even uh, being added to the uh, United States Library of Congress in 2002 as a culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant film. It was directed and written by John Singleton and stars uh, the three uh, kind of main stars that was were mentioned at the beginning there uh, are played by Cuba Gooding Jr., Ice Cube, and Morris Chestnut. Uh, and uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character Trey, his parents are played by Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne in the movie. As I said, Liam... I could not picture a scenario in a film that takes place in the Western world that might be so distinct from my own experience growing up, which isn't to say that there's nothing I can relate to with the interplay between the characters, but uh, there's a part in this movie where Ice Cube's character, Doughboy, is talking about, you know, on the news that they show these... uh, these kind of awful circumstances that are happening all over the world, but they're never looking at home. They're never looking at what they're experiencing right now. Um, And, and I think that, that some people might interpret that in, in a sort of uh, negative way, which is the idea. It's like, it's like, why are we giving, you know, focusing so much attention worldwide when we could be focusing at home. But I think what he says, especially when thinking back to the time that this came out, I think it still has a lot of resonance that, that, that the, the stories that are being told, um, even now, uh, focus on the kind of more affluent, whiter parts of the world. And it's very important that that people of color and black filmmakers were able to bring their stories. And this is a story that obviously John Singleton had a lot of personal connection to, to the screen. And this was, again, revolutionary for a lot of people, including myself. Do you, Liam, remember the first time that you saw Boys in the Hood? Yeah, yes and no. I I just remember it being part of the sort of like uh zeitgeist of my yes. young childhood for a while i you know it came out when i was 12 i doubt i saw it in the theater when i was 12 but i know i saw it really quickly after it came out it, it wasn't like something i caught in high school it was something i caught when i was still pretty young and um it it definitely complicated things you know for me and my friends um the seriousness of uh, gangster rap mm-hmm. did not really come through to us as 
10 and 11 year olds, even though we were listening to it all the time. Sure. And a lot of the films prior to this that dealt with drugs were sort of glorified shoot 'em ups. You know what I mean? So uh, you couldn't. We would watch something like King of New York or Fatal Beauty, and you could play those. We, We would literally bust out the water guns and play Fatal Beauty. You know, mm. uh, and that was funny to us, and that was fun, and that was the time when, like, you know, the TV show Cops was coming out, and there sure. was all this stuff. And in media, there were so many films that we watched that had drugs as a theme. There was even that crazy show. I, I don't, I think it came out after this, but there was a show in the '90s that was like the police officers get their uh, automatic weapons and take on drug dealer show, and it was so paramilitarized craziness sure. right mm-hmm. um and all that sort of mixed together for us but i remember when the crew you know me and my small group of friends saw this uh, it wasn't fun but it, it 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 really impacted us and suddenly made us like rethink all that stuff even at you know i probably didn't see this when i was 12 i probably saw this when i was 13 or 14 um but it, it suddenly became a lot more serious and it changed the way I was listening to music. You know, like I had uh, uh, Ice T OG pretty early on. And the thing about OG is like if you just focus on New Jack Hustler, you could kind of think like, wow, you know, uh, the drug game is fun and, and living in uh, impoverished neighborhoods is, is scary. But, you know, it's just part of, uh, part of whatever you, you kind of idealize it. Right. Sure. But if you really listen to the rest of the record. It's not that at all, actually. And if you contextualize that song, which is for a movie, so it's kind of the the pop hit of the record. If you sure. contextualize that song within the whole record, you suddenly get a picture of, oh wait, no, this is this is horrifying. This is this is terrible. This is a, a an injustice. And I think Boys in the Hood, it has enough stuff. I mean, th- there's definitely some some rough parts. Uh, but at the time, you know, I, you know, I, I, I was a pretty open-minded kid actually at 13 compared to a lot mm-hmm. of my, my, my fellow friends, but I wasn't so much so that I was like, well, this movie has too much misogyny or too much homophobia in it. Like that stuff kind of washed past us. And what really got us was like how realistic it was and how we realized the descriptions in a lot of the media we were consuming were not meant to be fun, that they were actually meant to be uh, eye-opening to the injustice of it all. And it, it still took me a few years for me to connect that to anything like politics. Like, I, I wouldn't say that Boys in the Hood radicalized me, but stuff like Boys in the Hood prepared me when I finally started learning a little bit more about politics to be like, well, the stuff that we're doing isn't working. So <laughs> clearly something needs to be different, you know? I think this is going to be a very embarrassing thing to say, but I actually feel like that as a teenager, maybe like my mid-teens, I actually resented movies like Boys in the Hood, um, mostly because the people I was going to junior high and high school with seemed to embrace these movies on a level that, like you were referring to with the, uh, the with the Ice-T song, like, like that there was a glorification. And you have to understand, I'm coming from a place that is not diverse. That is all these white newfies, you know, sitting in a classroom, you know, listening to Tupac and listening to Biggie and listening to the Wu-Tang Clan. And 
I have made an assumption at that time about what they were taking away from those things. And it, I'm embarrassed to think back at the person I was in regards to what, what I interpreted that as. And it's so strange because it wasn't until years later that I saw Boys in the Hood. And I saw, you know, if, uh, I'm sure, sure that even through teenage eyes, I would have realized, wait, this is not, this especially is not a movie that is glorifying the, uh, the sort of lifestyle that, that's, uh, that's on display here. It's just humanizing it. It's showing that there's different levels to it. There are different characters. You know, it, it, one of the nice things about watching this movie uh, and one of the surprising things about revisiting it is the fact that it spends so much time with these characters as children. I forgot how much of the movie was spent with that. I bet there are a lot of people even now who go into it. It's like, when are we getting to Cuba Gooding Jr.? When are we getting to Ice Cube? But this movie makes sure to show that this is not, you know, these characters did not come out fully formed in their late teens, early 20s, that this was a progress uh, and, and a progression through their childhood into adulthood and showing how those characters change because of, say, their relationship with the police or their relationship with their neighborhood. I mean, it makes the things that happen afterwards that much more tragic and, again, much more resonant for me. But, uh, but yeah, no. when I think back of, with my relationship with this particular film, and the films that I, were, quote-unquote, like it at the time, I feel like I rejected them based on this kind of ridiculous assumption I had about the kind of content that they had. And then actually seeing it, uh, I recognized how ignorant I was to the kind of things that these movies were trying to say. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in retrospect, this was a, a little bit different than a lot of the films sort of around it. Uh, mm -hmm. I think after it, it became sort of a template. But prior to this, you know... I mean, I guess before Boys in the Hood, you could talk about colors, but again, th this was this is one of the few films that managed to uh, have an urban context, have a clear engagement with issues of crime and policing, in which there wasn't a suggestion that uh, police might be okay. Like it's it's pretty clear that uh, you know you don't want to interact with cops in this movie uh, if you can help it, and. Uh, it's pretty clear, though, at the same time, that the violence in the film is not um, okay or fun. Um, right. and, and, and not to say that that had never existed before, but this was sort of the rebirth of that. Um, and, and certainly by casting Ice Cube, besides realizing something that all of America suddenly realized, which is that Ice Cube is a fucking amazing actor, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was also just an acknowledgement of like the pop culture of the time, and you know I think uh, again I I I, would, I should probably find Singleton talking more about this movie to get if this was the vibe, but I think to some extent this movie informed, uh, for me at least, but I think for a lot of people how they absorbed the art that was NWA or later Ice Cube records, whatever else. That suddenly it was like okay. This is not about um, thinking that this is cool. This is about depiction. Now, the, you can't also control things. So it wasn't that long before maybe it did become about sort of a, a kind of glorification. But even in, the, in what people call glorification, I think a lot of times that's more just like looking for dignity or trying to establish Absolutely. some sense yeah. of, of personhood. And that um, didn't start here. I mean, you think a lot of the exploitation movies of the 70s, which right. again, many of those were directed and written by white creators but right. uh but be that as it may i mean you know you think about something like superfly that's a movie that that even if it does show um the consequences you come out of it with kind of a glorified vision of what that lifestyle might be like but i think people one of the things that you need to acknowledge with this film 
is the difficult thread that Singleton is trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, follow on this because uh, you know the, the or, or rather the the difficult eye of the needle he's trying to thread because mm-hmm. um on one hand he really wants to be clear that the situation of violence especially in LA the gang war that was going on um and had been for a long time was bad uh and and wants to be clear about the impact and the emotional impact of that violence uh while still allowing for the humanity of the characters in the film, um, specifically because it is a film about uh, black folks, and and notice he's he's acknowledging the the violence in, inherent in the different neighborhoods and the and the clashes between them. He's acknowledging he's also including the police and specifically uh, as as KRS one uh, acknowledged the the black cop and and what that means uh, mm-hmm. for that community. Uh, but he's trying to do all of that without giving fuel to what was at that point a a, a a heightening culture war of censorship and denunciation. And and unfortunately, I would say not the fault of the film, but this film became part of a narrative that would actually lead to more policing, even though that mm. was not the point. Um, right. I think it was what he was trying to do was maybe impossible, which is... Um, tell black stories uh uh elucidate what's going on in the neighborhood while still trying to tell we white people about themselves like this is happening you don't seem to care and it is a big tragedy and 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 i think uh not just this film but the this film and the films that came after it actually kind of fueled white fear more than it did to um relieve it you know it it told a story and somehow only the fear of the story came through to a chunk of america i mean i'm sure a lot of people didn't actually watch this movie but but they suddenly were wanting to know more about this reality and it fueled oppression as opposed to lifting people up that's a really interesting uh view of it and i'm I'm not sure i'd have to read up more on it because again i was so distanced from uh, the 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 situation in the U.S. at the time that this came out, but it does feel like that was the reality of what was going on then. Because that's the thing about a movie that strikes a chord and does enter the zeitgeist. Like this movie was a huge financial success and a critical success, and and in some ways that that's incredibly important, right? Because this movie was a financial success, it means that it opens up you know the the Hollywood to making more movies from black creators and putting more of the, that out into the world because they feel like, again, it's all a commerce-based system. But when something is is that mainstream, it means that a very uh, distilled version of it gets pushed out to people who are not experiencing it directly, just like how I was experiencing it, right? when I What I thought Boys in the Hood was when I was 15 is not what this movie is, but there's a reason I thought that. It's because when I saw maybe clips from it or if I heard people talking about it, that they were talking about it, you know, because of the levels of violence or because of the conflict that's on it. it they're not telling me about you know, Lawrence Fishburne on a street corner talking about the gentrification of the neighborhood and the way that people are being controlled in it, which, again, a very affecting moment in the movie, but that's not the kind of thing that I ever heard when I was a teenager. Yeah, and I think that that... Um, it's sort of the, the... the We don't talk enough, I think, about the tragedy of the 90s, right? Like, the mm-hmm. 90s brought back the politics 
uh, and the specifically the identity politics of the uh, civil rights and then post civil rights moment um, into the forefront after the eighties had done everything possible to squash it down and make it go away. Uh, and we don't talk about how there was a moment there, and yet part of the story of that is. Uh, the effectiveness of the Democrats to destroy everyone to the left of them, uh, mm. to completely invalidate all of the actual left. Uh, and the, the you know, I, I think the narrative of left infighting gets exaggerated a little bit. But, but I do think in the 90s, uh, we hadn't yet processed this idea of identi- identity politics, which is also a, a term that has been weaponized unfortunately sure um mm-hmm. but 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 representation became more important in some places than actual justice and i think that's sort of one of the encouraging things now is people often tie the two together we want representation and then we want people who are uh part of that representation to call for actual change and actual substantive uh justice change um and and some of that got lost in the 90s um you know it's worth mentioning you know this movie comes out in 1991 it's a giant phenomena spawns films from menace to society to all manner of 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 uh you know some of them are very good but you could Mm -hmm. claim knockoffs whatever uh and then by 1994 we have the the crime bill the clinton crime bill co-written by joe biden Mm -hmm. um that that's not a coincidence you know what i mean like that's that's it's not directly uh uh causative but the correlation there is not without significance that there there's a turn happening and unfortunately uh this sort of narrative uh it becomes part of that um that being said it it, it's not in anything in the movie because i think he masterfully is like this situation is bad but there are real people in this mm-hmm. world they have dimensions they have depth um and the stuff that's happening to them is at least worth your attention which is i think more than a movie that got this big i mean there you all manner of movies had told this manner of story before but this was the only movie that came out at this time in this context telling this story in this way and it, you know it, it is perhaps the most amazing thing is that it was the huge cultural phenomenon that it was instead of just going away you know right and it it is of course it maybe there's an added resonance from watching this in the year 2020 and what with what's going on in the world right now and has been going on for the last few years and i guess you can make a case that it has always been going on to one extent or another but certainly it's you know, the black lives movement and the current protests that are going on in the streets there is a reflection of what was happening in 1991 post uh, the rodney king verdict and the response to that and the way that again that has been the message of these things have been twisted uh i mean there are there's there's the part that i was referring to in the movie where Lawrence fishburne is talking about things like black on black violence you know again pushing against the same narrative that uh frankly hateful racist people in 2020 are bringing up once again with the same you know the same responses are still valid to that as well and it's uh, it's amazing to think how little has shifted from the year 1992 right now but i guess uh, you know depending where you are in the world it shouldn't be surprising at all well i think it, it in many places it's actually gotten less bad you can you, you know if you look at the crime statistics it actually got worse uh, in places like LA after mm-hmm. this um, especially with the introduction of crash um, uh, 
community resources against street hoodlums of mm. the police rapid response to violence unit that itself was basically just a gang in LA that beat people up and arrested them and shot them and murdered them and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but overall, if you look at the actual numbers over the last, especially 20 years, um, with with heartbreaking exceptions in places like Chicago and whatnot, uh, gang violence has gone down significantly. Um, and uh, uh, while the injustice of the poverty at play and, and the injustice of the racism inherent in the system, those are all still very real. It is worth acknowledging that, you know, uh, this uh, this concept that uh, stuff like the L.A. riots sort of perpetuated, which is like every urban area is just a... Uh, 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 kettle ready powder to keg. explode. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. powder keg. Right, right. That's how about I say kettle? Powder keg ready to explode. Uh, <laughs> that's like largely untrue. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, the places where during this current uprising there has been um, maybe more uh, direct actions against property, uh, those are all based around uh, uh, injustice w- inherent within the system and and economic disparity. Uh, the level of um, you know, violence among young people is generally down from this time. Like that part got better. But uh, one of the things I think the film suggests that you have to do work to get there, but, but I I think it's part of the narrative is that the violence is the result is one sort of symptom of a larger problem. And while that symptom has dissipated, the problem is still there. Uh, I I don't know what the current uh, state of Crenshaw is, but in all of these smaller towns around LA that are part of LA County, but they're kind of like not, you know, central LA, um, even if the violence is less there, that doesn't necessarily mean that, the opportunities are more that the poverty has gone down or that the addiction rates are less like there's still all kinds of issues that result from a combination of uh systematic racism and a general uh uh disdain for the poor and lack of opportunities for the poor so it's like a both a class and a race issue exacerbate the issues in all these places what do you think is unique about this movie that allowed it to cross over to being a mainstream film. And in order to become a mainstream movie, it means that white audiences as well as black audiences have to embrace it. What, what about it at that time allowed this particular movie to make that crossover? Do you think? Well, one of the, one of the things that we talked about that like made me, makes me lose my mind is uh, the number of folks who sort of uh, describe this movie as a after school special. Mm-hmm. And uh, you pointed out, like, to to the extent that after school specials address real life issues, I guess, like, it's a movie about real people's lives and their issues. I, I don't want to defend that that description at all, but I do think that part of that interpretation comes from the fact that this movie has a sense of dread around it, with particularly with right. the character of Ricky Baker, played by Morris Chestnut, where he's shown as someone who has his potential for a lot of future. But I mean. At the midway part of this movie, you know something's not going to go right for well, this guy. It just feels like it's all heading towards some sort of violent incident. And and to to an extent, if you're looking at it from, again, a very broad, very distilled view, then it seems like that's the quote-unquote message, even if that, I think, is incredibly reductive. Well, I think that's part of the appeal, though. I think 
uh, that is one of the, I don't want to say failings, I think the movie's really great, but I think one of the reasons it's limited and not the whole narrative is because it is so strongly a melodrama and it is mm. so strongly mm-hmm. a film that plays off of tragedy. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say tragedy porn because there is a certain amount of dignity beyond that. It's not boiled down just to that. But that that aspect of the the young man of promise being cut down and and whatever that is part of the appeal i think for a segment of the audience of this film um and i think his decision to not tell a story like that again i mean uh, this is a big assumption but i'd I'd bet money on it he probably got offers to do a lot of movies like this after this movie to tell more stories about absolutely uh, uh what people would at the time would would call the ghetto like that's that's probably what every offer was so his decision to do something like poetic justice or higher learning that still connects to some of the things he cares about but isn't again rooted in his own experience or rooted in one community's experience per se is like probably really significant and probably really important uh for understanding his movies and and we'll talk about that more when we get to those movies but uh but i think that um as much as this is a very sort of like compelling, effective film, it is a certain way to tell a story about this community. And I think it was something that people were ready to feel, which is more of a sense of, um, I think for some audiences, this elicits more pity than understanding. And I think that's actually, uh, again, not a failure of the film, but a failure uh, of our community that we couldn't see it as more than that. Uh I guess you could see it also as a failure of uh, the imagination of a certain audience that has right. to categorize things, right? I mean, I I would be shocked if, if a certain segment of the audience didn't come away from the ending of this movie thinking, oh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, he's the good guy. Ice Cube's character, he's the bad guy. Or he made the bad decision as opposed to the good decision. But the movie doesn't split things up in that way. I mean, one of the nice things about this movie is even though – it has that sort of uh, the text on the screen talking about what the future is of these characters. That final scene between Ice Cube and Cubic Jr. is incredibly sympathetic and incredibly affecting, I think, right? I mean, it doesn't tell it. Cubic Jr., who has been shown his character uh, in this movie, he's not straight up a goody goody, but he's certainly someone who is, because of his experience, and I guess in some ways because he's been guided by his parents. That that when it's his decision at the end to get out of that car before that violent incident happens, you would think that the character of Doughboy, as we've seen up to that point, would respond to that in this incredibly negative, violent way. But his he has an understanding. He's like, that is not you. That's me because of where I am right now. And it's really tragic. I mean, there's there is a lot of tragedy in this movie. Like you said, I don't think it crosses over into that um, that segment of tragedy porn because this movie isn't just a series of tragic incidents. There's actually a lot of humor in this movie, particularly right. with the interplay of the characters. And it's a very human movie. But two things happen. One is the the. Uh the tragic moment, you know, uh, the, the Morris Day's character, Ricky getting murdered is mm-hmm. so dramatic, so overwhelming. So sure. whatever 
and then they're pursuing you know stuff after that that it kind of eats the rest of the movie you forget the coming of ageness of the rest that's of the true. film it gets mm-hmm. eaten up by that moment um and and maybe that's a criticism of the, of the movie i, I do I'm, think I by think the I'm way a little Liam, too sorry, nostalgic for that to, to see that go ahead just to just, just i just want to make a quick interruption which is i do think that maybe the melodrama of that i think some people have been are critical of that scene where they bring yeah uh, Ricky's body home and puts it put it on the couch. I think that's incredible. I think that's one of the uh, emotional and dramatic highlights of the movie, and it's yeah. kind of amazing that a 24, 25-year-old directed it. I do think that when it goes back to his mother reading his SAT grades, I do think that pushes it a little far over the edge in terms of melodrama. But, I mean, you know, th- th- there's inevitably going to be a few steps wrong when you're talking about uh, drama that's, that's pitched this high. I... I... I agree and disagree. I think that's fair. I think it's important to remember the dearth of anything like this existing at the time. Absolutely. So, so the need to feel like you have to do a lot. Like, this movie did a fucking lot. And I think if people weren't there in that time, it's hard to understand what a unique thing this was and what a cultural amnesia there was around stuff like this outside of the black community. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, though... Um, one thing that I don't think always comes across to audiences that you really have to be attuned to is that last scene, there's a certain amount of regret. And mm. I don't mean the regret of Doughboy killing this, these other people, though I don't think the film thinks that's a good thing. It's 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 a, it's in a way a horrible thing. It's the regret of uh, John Singleton identifying with Cuba Gooding Jr., the regret of someone who was part of this drama and this community who maybe moved on to some extent, right. and mm-hmm. you feel like you abandoned these people. You feel like maybe you are uh, you are in some sense like a traitor or, uh, or or at least suspect in some way. And I think that is part of the emotional uh sauce let's say of that scene that yeah it's touching yeah he gets this forgiveness for getting out of the car and also this understanding of like that was probably the right thing but there's a sense in which like showing doughboy's fate is not meant to scandalize and be like you know what it's just like that murder all the time murder 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 Mm. no 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 that's about saying like no matter what cuba gooding jr's character decided he couldn't save doughboy Right. And that it's not his role, but he feels it. And I think that, to me, is part of, again, I don't know how biographical uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character is for, for John Singleton, but there is got to be some of himself in that. That's just my, my sense of it. And, and at least that moment felt to me, even if it's not what he feels, it's at least something he identifies with, that feeling of, like, you know, I'm choosing a different path. Choosing that different path isn't just because I'm better. It's not, it doesn't come with a sense of superiority. It comes with a feeling of like, I hope I'm not making in some way the weak decision. You know what I mean? And so absolutely, there's just something I think really meaningful to that, that makes this movie that much better for me. Uh, and again, I, I, I see what you're saying and I, and I think people are, they can have that criticism. I, I just personally think like it's not necessary, but I'm sure when he was making this movie, there was some sense of like, this might be the only movie like this to ever exist again. You know what I mean? Like there's probably some feeling of like, if I don't do this, all this right now, it's never going to happen. So, you know, whatever, I I guess in retrospect, it might not play as well for, for all audiences, but for me, it it still works. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, it's so interesting to think that if he did start writing a treatment of this in 1986, 
and then completed it and sold it in 1990 that those those you know introductory scenes of childhood that like th- those would have been pushed back even further but it also shows that that a lot of the things he was writing about even then were sort of universal that they were not specific to the early 90s uh, that that it was something that he experienced growing up even before then. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I do think that there is a autobiographical element to this. Uh, but maybe there's parts of of John Singleton in all of the three characters to one extent or another, or at least in the people that he saw. I do want to talk about before we we finish up discussing uh, this movie that you mentioned before that Ice Cube is a, a a very strong actor. I think he's an absolutely revelatory actor in this. I think he is the highlight. His performance is. Uh, and, and you know, my wife and I were watching it together and she said, well, maybe it's not that far from his experience. Well, that's, you know, you don't just come out of the womb as a strong actor and able to present that and to be a powerful force on film. Uh, whatever natural charisma he has uh, and maybe that he developed in his music career, boy, it comes through so perfectly. Again, what blows me away about this movie is is in some ways the performances, but it's really the ability of John Singleton in his first film as a person in his early 20s able to get these performances out of these actors, some of whom were never this good again. It's um, it's unbelievable, really. And and um, uh, I you know we talked about this, so I'll just admit to the audience, um, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s performance is not my favorite in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that he handles the drama really well, and if, after he gets pulled over by the cop, and the scene he comes back and he goes to the neighbor's house, that's unbelievable. That's next level stuff. It's probably some of the best I've seen from him uh, in his career. But some of the more natural hangout stuff with him is like real stiff. It's real awkward. It and and it and it is exacerbated by the fact that he looks older. That yes. that a lot of the other people in this film who themselves are not teenagers either still look pretty young. Ice Cube still looks pretty young. Maybe not a teenager, but but young. Cuba Gooding Jr. just does not look young. And then he's so mm. not naturally good at hanging out and having fun with his co-stars that it just it just makes those parts a little bit awkward. Uh, but that's the only perform like his is the only one for me that is like a little bit the seams are showing. I think even some of the smallest performances here are very good. The humor is is there. I just I, I'm just so impressed with that performance. And like you said, from a director who's just getting his feet wet. I I want to throw out a, a a quick mention of the the kids performances. As I said, this movie does have a surprising amount of kind of. I guess you'd call it preamble before we get to the quote unquote modern uh, aspects of the movie. But I think the kids do a really good job as well, particularly uh, Desi Arnaz Hines II, who plays the 10 year old version of Trey. Uh, I mean, you look back, we've seen anyone who watches a lot of movies like we do, we've seen tons of terrible kids' performances. Uh, in a lot of the reviews, if you go on like Letterboxd and things like that, they'll, they'll mention the fact that the part of this movie where the kids go to see a dead body, uh, which is probably the. The, the thing that a lot of people would take away from that preamble section. Um, and if you kind of put that at odds with a movie that probably a lot of people would have seen around the same time period from a few years before, which would have been Stand By Me, again, about another group of kids going to see a dead body and and what the, the, the major differences in what the, those experiences are and how connected that might be to someone's everyday life where one is just this adventure where these kids are going on this thing, which isn't to say that Stand By Me is a bad movie or doesn't have resonance, but in this movie, it's seen as this 
if not everyday thing, that it's just something that is available to the people in this area because violence is just a part of their lives. Right. And I, 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 I mean, I don't know if you felt this way. I felt like that had to be intentional, right? Like that had to yeah. be like a direct reference and to sort of show it's so much more casual for them, you know, yes. because it's so much more important. And, um, you know, that movie also has bullies. This movie has bullies, but the, mm-hmm. the, the, the situation is turned enough on its head that it really makes you think differently about what kind of movie this is going to be and what kind of ex- life experience these kids are having, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, I think you're right. I do think it's intentional. It, even with the kids, I think they even walked down some train tracks at one point. So, I mean, they're, they're, the parallels would be very difficult to ignore. Um, but just finishing up here, Liam, what do you think the power of Boys in the Hood is for someone watching it in the year 2020? Does it still Does it still affect you the same way as it did when you were in your early teens? I mean, I'm definitely a little more critical of it. Like I said, uh, I noticed mm-hmm. a little bit more the Cuba Gooding Jr.ness of it all. Uh, but it still affects me. It still gets me emotional. It still gets me um, frustrated that the world has not significantly changed in certain ways from this time. Uh, it still impresses me. Um, and it and it makes me wish that Ice Cube was doing more dramatic stuff. I, I yeah. actually do appreciate him as a comedic actor, and and I think it's really easy to write him off if you only focus on like the bigger family films. But, but I think he's done a few things that I think are pretty funny on their own. Um, It's also, uh, you know, it's frustrating because I I don't know that anyone is trying to tell something like this today, but maybe it's not the moment for that. Maybe it's the moment to tell different kinds of stories uh, about people's experiences. But I think at the time, Again, even if this rubs people the wrong way, maybe it's just too moralistic for some people. Maybe they want mm-hmm. something darker. They want something less about whatever. It's a, I still think an important idea to think of, hey, um, this was so important for this moment. And that um, there's a number of things in here that maybe feel like educational moments, like talking about safe sex or sure. the ways that it was – that those conversations weren't necessarily happening in some of the places that uh, this movie was, was hopefully going to be seen, you know, 1991, I still couldn't get confirmation from people at 12, exactly how you got AIDS. Sure. You had people still saying stuff that was like, definitely not true. And so even having that conversation in the film it seems kind of like weird or, or, or whatever to people might to people now, but I think all that stuff was important for that moment, you know? And so maybe hopefully now some of the stuff in here seems a little weird. And I certainly don't love some of the misogyny and homophobia in the film, mm-hmm. but I think that depiction isn't necessarily endorsement. I, you know, at least I hope we would feel that way. Mm, I think that's important to mention. Uh, I think that uh, you can't talk about, uh, the black filmmakers of the 1990s without talking about John Singleton, without talking about Boys in the Hood and the films that came in its wake. And we're going to be talking about some of those movies as we go through his filmography. Uh, but now I think we should take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about John Singleton's final film, 
from the year 2011, it's very, very different from Boys in the Hood. Uh, I'm glad we were able to have a, a kind of in-depth conversation about that movie, Liam, because I'm not sure there's as much to say about 2011's abduction. We'll talk about it right after this. Like anyone they've ever spoken to. Who are these people? They can't be trusted. Listen to me, Nathan. We're going to find you. Not if I find you first. Wow. Whoever these people are, whatever they want, I have to stop them. You have something that belongs to me. Now it's time to give it back. What are you planning on doing, Nathan? Trust me. A young man sets out to uncover the truth about his life after finding his baby photo on a missing person's website. It is the absolutely ludicrous action thriller abduction from the year 2011, a starring vehicle for uh, Twilight star, I guess, or one of the Twilight movie stars, Taylor Lautner. Uh, who is, uh, I guess it was their attempt to make him a big action star. I think his father even produced this movie. Directed by John Singleton and written by Sean Christensen. Now, this movie is interesting because the script was a hot ticket item, Liam. I don't know if you know this. This movie was, like, they were bidding for this script. It was on the blacklist, the famous Hollywood blacklist of the uh, most um, renowned unproduced scripts. And they, uh, Sean Christensen ended up selling his script for this movie for $1 million, uh, which... Having watched it is it just blows me away. Uh, but again, directed by John Singleton, has an amazing supporting cast, including uh, Alfred Molina as Frank Burton, Jason Isaacs as, and Maria Bello as the uh, adopted parents of Taylor Lautner's character Nathan Harper, uh, Sigourney Weaver, and uh, briefly Dermot Mulroney is in this as well. Uh, let's start, Liam, uh, with what did you think about this movie that neither of us had seen previously? Um, trying to think of how to say this. Uh, it's not. It's not great. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's not as bad as it could be, which is <laughs> perhaps the worst thing to say about a movie in some ways. Um, but you know, I, I went in with the idea that a no one I know celebrates John Singleton's later career stuff. Uh, though I think. If my memory serves, Four Brothers is actually pretty good. But when okay. this when this came out, I remember people pulling their hair out in frustration, just being like, "Well, this is it. This is the the clear death knell of one of our favorites." Um, and it's not as bad as all that to me. However, it is a weak, light, just lacking in teeth, lacking in conviction film. Starring one of the least interesting <laughs> actors I've ever been forced to watch in my entire life. I had no, having never watched the Twilight movies, I had no idea what a dead weight this guy was. <laughs> Liam is not joking. Uh, we actually, uh, we were in a conversation on Facebook and you did not realize that Taylor Lautner was in the Twilight movies or where he came from necessarily. You just thought he was just this young actor. No, 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 no. That's not true. Okay. I did know he was from the Twilight movies. I just didn't know his name. 
In fact, <laughs> the only people whose names I know from the Twilight movies are the two folks who everything they've done since those movies has actually been really great and I love them. <laughs> but I only learned their names when they started acting in other things and I was like, oh, actually, that Twilight person's pretty good. What's his name again? What's, what is that? Whereas this dude, uh, he decided after Twilight or during Twilight or whenever to do this thing and uh, and he's bad. So there you go. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it's just, it, it never really picks up. Our two leads are really boring and all of the interesting actors have really crappy uh, sidelines that I think yeah. are there. They're, it almost feels like they're only in this movie to add gravitas to him. To Absolutely. be like, this is who he is. This is the level of actor he is. And he deserves to be in this film with these heavy hitters. And he obviously does not. He brings nothing. And the few scenes that I think are actually kind of good, we talked about or, uh, off mic, I think the train fight is actually pretty well done Compared to, you know, a lot of action in 2011, it's okay. You know, it's pretty good. Uh, he still is not great in it, though. He's doing the best he can, and he just can't pull it off. And I, I just, I found it very frustrating as a movie. So much of this movie involves Taylor Lautner's character being on the run. And I think it's meant to be, I don't know, like fugitive-ish. Uh, him, And it's actually just, it's not just him. It's actually him and his girlfriend, played by Lily Collins. The two of them are on the run. In fact, she really is as part of the, as much a part of the story as he is for the most part. Uh, and this romantic element at its core ends up being a bit of an albatross in this movie because he, whatever individuality he might show or charisma or at least physical prowess on the action scenes, it feels like this romantic subplot ends up kind of holding that back from uh, being more than him trying to rescue her at any particular time. Um, and, look, I don't want to spend too much time knocking him as an actor. He's not good in this movie. I've heard that he's better elsewhere. He would almost have to be. Um, but this is meant to be a vehicle for him. That's why you have these, as you said, This that's why you have these supporting performers here. These amazing actors are there to to, you know, to bring him up and make him look good as he's doing all of this action. But the thing about this movie is there's not that much action in it. Like, there's lots of running around. There's but a couple of sections, you know. I, I also think the diner is technically an action scene. But I guess. But even but but what I would say is the high action points of this movie would be transitional moments in a real action movie. That's so true. like they put work into that scene in the diner, but that should be a lead-in to a cool action scene. That's the whole scene. Is they then they get out of the diner, and they get away. Oh, cool! They got away. Uh, what? How is that? It, it feels like the most stuntiness is when uh, Mr. Lautner is doing parkour in the in the the, base, ball, the ball field, stadium. and it's so boring. Look, I get people are skeptical about parkour. We we got kind of stoked on it in the two thousands, and then we overdid <laughs> it with the parkour. But here's the deal. I think a good parkour scene is still interesting to watch. And, Absolutely. And my man manages to make it as boring as possible. And he does like three moves, just like bumping off of the yeah. side of a wall. He, I mean, he, it, he there's really in, nothing to it. He jumped through it. a hole. He jumped through that hole. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So the action itself isn't that impressive. And the tension. I mean, I do think that there are, I, I don't want to knock this as if there's nothing good at all about this movie. I do think that the sequences at the uh, baseball game near the end, that they're well-filmed and that there's interesting tension in terms of where characters are and what they know and all that sort of thing. But, I mean, you could see everything about this movie once you understand the twist of it, 
which is a little bit difficult to understand about who's the good guys and who are the bad guys and things like that. There is a, that ludicrous diner scene. Boy, that one is not great. And I don't just mean the action part of it, but the fact that Taylor Lautner's character recognizes immediately that Alfred Molina's character, even though he is legitimately trying to help him, knowing that Alfred Molina is on this list, the MacGuffin in the center of the movie, that has, I guess, uh, people who have what, given money to foreign governments or something like that? Doesn't really matter. But what it means is that you don't know who to trust. Is Sigourney Weaver a good guy? Is she a bad guy? You don't really understand. Uh, so it, it, I guess that's what made this script so interesting and so valuable. Uh, but I don't think any of it is that engaging, and I don't think it's that unpredictable. Uh, and in fact, maybe it takes a few too many twists and turns from what should be a fairly straightforward action movie, but... Again, look, this movie was made on a comparatively low budget. I think it was like $35 million. So it's not like this $100 million action epic. But it just it just felt like it needed two or three more fight scenes in it to really establish that Taylor Lautner is a, you know, look, if he can't bring the charisma, then he should be bringing the, the fight and the bringing the action. And he doesn't really do that here. Even the the poster of the movie, which shows him sliding down this uh, embankment at the the baseball stadium, where like basically s- um, sparks are shooting up from his feet as he's sliding down with a gun in his hand, and then you see that in the movie proper, and it's just him sliding on his back down this thing for like six seconds, and it's there's nothing to it. I mean, it really very much is the you know your imagination versus reality. It just makes you disappointed in it as you're watching it. I think there's a sense in which the uh, let's call it the parallax view of it all is sure. is supposed to move it forward, but the film is confused between vagueness and mis- mystery. Simply being vague and uncertain as to what's going on does not, in and of itself, guarantee mystery. And I just don't think there's enough mystery to the movie for me to be invested. Of like, man, I really, I really wonder what's happening. I can't wait to find out what the resolution. To all this, it's after a while, you're just kind of like, just tell me, man. Just tell me what what it is. Just tell me. I just don't. And 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 by the end, there's sort of a noble presentation to his dad uh, abandoning him for his job. <laughs> that is like not compelling at all. Like <laughs> earlier, when uh, Mr. Lautner is like, you know what, Dad, screw you. You've never been there for me. I'm like, oh no. Him saying that means they're not going to end on that point. He's going to change his mind and there's going to be some redemption and it's completely unearned. So like even before the end, I knew how it was going to end and it made me mad at that point because I was like, no, he just abandoned you. There's nothing. And and the movie's been really clear. He abandoned you so he could be an executioner for the American empire. So And when when he brings that up, like my father abandoned me to Alfred Molina's character, he's like, you don't know the first thing about your father. It's like, yeah, he knows that he abandoned him. I mean, that's a pretty big fucking deal. Uh, This is one of those kind of scripts where the, the people would describe it as tight, but I think it's too tight. Because what it means is that whenever a character says anything or does anything, it's all meant to be, oh, this will pay off later. So it means that you, the characters never have any texture to them. So when you find out that Taylor Lautner's you know, good friend at school makes fake IDs, then of course later in the movie he's going to have to make a fake ID for him. And there's – you know, in a lot of ways in a, in a script where uh, the characters feel – three-dimensional, then that's a good thing, that that all these things kind of pay off. But since that's all these characters are, are a device for delivering 
things later in the movie, it makes everything feel really hollow. I mean, I don't know anything about these characters at the end. I know that that <laughs> I know that Taylor Lautner's character can use a computer and he has pictures of motorcycles on his wall, and that's pretty much what I know about him. But boy, by the time this movie was over and they're hiding Dermot Mulroney uh, in b- behind a whole, a whole bunch of editing and shadows, I was just done with it at this point. I just did not have any interest left in it at all. <sighs> Doug, I don't know how much more I can say about this movie. <laughs> it's a difficult thing, right? I, I do want to say one more thing, which is, to, to, I, it's really, it would be incredibly unfair to directly compare this movie to Boys in the Hood. But one thing that this movie does have in common is a father figure that is trying to guide a young person in their life. And uh, I'm not talking about his actual father in this. I'm talking about Jason Isaac's character, his adopted father, and to his, his parents to some extent. And while Lawrence Fishburne in Boys in the Hood is someone who has... He does take a hard stance, certainly, and he's strict. But he also has a gentleness to his character and a, uh, a lightness to his character that lets him, us as the audience see that him and his son have an incredibly close and um, honest relationship. Uh, to the point where Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character in that movie even says, like, I've never lied to my father. And even though that's not strictly true, the idea is that they have a really close relationship. Here, our introduction to Jason Isaac's character is he beats the shit out of Taylor Lautner. And the suggestion is that he beats the shit out of him in like it, as like they're, they're uh, basically sparring with boxing gloves. But like he's beating the hell out of him to the point where he's vomiting on the ground. And the movie presents this as a positive thing, that he's preparing him... What the fuck is he supposed to be preparing him for? Oh, for this, uh, I was going to say kind of the opposite of this, that there needed to be more of him beating up his son. Because the th- point that you seem to have missed, Doug, is that that's why he's good at martial arts. In- no, I didn't miss it. I get that. But the thing is, are, were they expecting someone to eventually find him and yes. he is going to have to go yes. on the run? Yes. <laughs> that's that's The whole movie is built on the idea that he can accept all this crazy stuff because it's the only reason that explains why his parents are such bad parents. <laughs> like the reason that his dad is such a hard ass and is actually training him to fight all the time is suddenly he's like, Oh, okay. You guys were preparing me for this, which by the way, I'm not saying that justifies his sh- shitty parenting, but it, to me, I had the opposite reaction, which was like, if you want me to believe Mr. Lautner here is able to fight even one of these dudes, you're going to have to show me more of him getting his ass kicked by his dad. I guess that's fair. Because the reality for me was I was sitting there going, isn't he a kid? How is he able to fight even (laughs) one of these dudes? These dudes are like actual assassins. And multiple times he's like, I got this. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm doing all right. All right. And I'm like, no, no. If you want me to believe these scenes, he's got to do weird. The, the way this works, right, is like he grabs some object they don't see or he has a friend help out or he's smart. So he sees a weakness that they're not ready. He just straight fights them, Doug. Like he's their equal. I'm sorry. I don't care how much his dad was beating him up. He doesn't get through the first fight. He doesn't leave the house. When 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 his parents are killed, he doesn't get out of the house as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, right. For this movie to even come close to making any sense. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that scene culminates <laughs> after his parents. I was actually confused, by the way, uh, when his parents, his adopted parents get killed in this movie. Because they're being shot by someone using a silencer, I thought they were being shot by dart guns. I didn't realize they were actually dead. I figured they were going to show up later in the movie. But then his whole house explodes because 
the assassins also put a bomb in the oven. <laughs> it's such a ridiculous. Oh boy! And then the house explodes, and there's a like a like a instant shot of Taylor Lautner spinning around in a circle, his body as it goes in towards the swimming pool, and uh, and that's hilarious too. So I mean, there's a lot of really goofy stuff in this movie, but I'm gonna go back to what you said right at the beginning of this conversation, Liam, which is that this movie isn't terrible. Like it is, it's it's bad, but it isn't so bad. And I'm not gonna say it's so bad; it's good. But what I mean, it's not bad enough to be interesting. So it just means that it's just a not very good action thriller, which is one of the most boring genres to not very be good at. Th- this movie, I can't imagine ever recommending it to anybody, especially now because no one even cares about Taylor Lautner anymore. No, I, I, I could legitimately say, please don't ever watch this movie, even if you have a secret crush <laughs> for Taylor Lautner. This is not worth your time. It's, it is the ultimate kind of boring, which is that it's competently boring. It is a competently made, boring piece of crap. If it even had any flaws in it, that would be more interesting. Even if it was just seeing a mic every once in a while, that would be more interesting than what we ended up watching with this movie. To to keep this from, from ending this first episode of this kind of series, ending on a low note, I want to mention that John Singleton, even though this f- feels very much like a work-for-hire type thing, I think we referenced that already, you know, it had a popular script that went for a lot of money, but you don't feel a lot of... Th- the way that Boys in the Hood felt very autobiographical, there's nothing of that here. This is just a kind of a chance to have a little bit of fun, I guess you might say, except that fun doesn't come through to the audience actually watching it. For those who might suggest that this is representative of John Singleton's skills eroding throughout his career, I do want to point to the fact that he did produce in the mid-2000s some very good movies, including Hustle and Flow, which uh, actually kind of calls back to the autobiographical uh, ideals of Boys in the Hood. But also that a few years after this, uh, he directed probably the most uh, well-known episode of The People vs. O.J. Simpson, the American Crime Story series, uh, which also had Cuba Gooding Jr. in it as a sort of bookend to his career. The episode uh, called The Race Card, which is really, really good. I know, if, for those of you who never went and checked out The People vs. O.J. Simpson, it really is an incredible series to watch uh, and has a lot of really amazing performances in it. And um, I think that if we wanted to close with something that that was more representative of the, what John Singleton could bring to the table as a director, I almost wish we went with that instead. But as a final film, as a final feature-length film, boy, Abduction is 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 a disappointment. I would say. Oh, yeah. I again, I don't want <laughs> to end on a negative note, and I think it's worth pointing out that he died young, and so maybe he could have made another feature-length film that would have uh, sort of washed this taste out of our mouths in some sense. Uh, and I'm more than willing, since you know we can, we can always u- do that uh, episode, combine it with um, uh, our middle movie, uh, Shaft, if you want to. Uh, Sorry, just say that again? <laughs> <laughs> shaft. Um, uh, but yeah, but I'm not totally disappointed because, again, this is part of what I like about doing this series this way is that uh i think it's better to combine this movie with boys in the hood as opposed to just ending with this movie and being like well that's a sad ending to this series see you guys later (laughs) um you know no one no director is one of their films uh and i think that uh that's true of john singleton it's true of whatever 
auteur or working director, whoever it is that you think is great, there's going to be something that they do probably that is not as good as the other stuff. And so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm prepared to be surprised by some of the other movies on this list. I haven't seen all of them. Um, and some of them that I have seen, I haven't seen in a long time. So I'm curious to see how it works out and it'll be a fun activity regardless. With that said, obviously we strongly recommend Boys in the Hood and Abduction, not so much. On the next episode of this podcast, we're going to be talking about 1993's Poetic Justice, as well as 2005's Four Brothers. Um, I've I've actually have not seen either of these two films, so I'm very interested. I hadn't heard a lot of good things about Four Brothers, though just recently I heard someone uh, say that it was rather underrated. So, I mean, hey, I'm willing to keep a very open mind in regard to both of those projects. Uh, do you have any thoughts on those just before we go into plugs, Liam? I have great memories of Poetic Justice that I've been told are not real, and that, I, <laughs> that when I rewatch it, I will be surprised. Uh, and Four Brothers I watched more recently than that, and I don't think it's a great film, but I don't think it is... Uh, a bad film the last time i watched it i remember thinking it was pretty good it was entertaining it had some issues but nothing about it was like oh god i can't you know it certainly blew abduction out of the water (laughs) not a hard thing to do Uh, so we'll be back soon with those two films liam if people want to check out more podcasts through cinema smorgasbord what's the best way for them to do so well they can find us on cinepunks.com as well as a whole family of other shows uh ranging from music to comic books to movies covered there uh as well as some great writing or they can head over to our site uh cinemasmorgasbord.com and they can find us on the social media we're cinema smorg s-m-o-r-g on twitter uh and they can follow us individually if they would so choose uh i am at liam rules r-u-l-z and you are at Doug underscore Tilly. How do you spell that again, Doug? T-I-L-L-E-Y. And there's also a Cinema Smorgasbord uh, Facebook group. If you just do a search for that over there, join up and join the conversation. Uh, And, of course, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes and a rating, boy, we'd appreciate it very, very much. And we love getting feedback. You can do that through the website or through any of our various social media. I'll tell you, Liam loves getting message PM'd on Twitter saying, hey, I love your podcast. Uh, He gets excited. You mean DM'd? Whatever. Private message is where I come from. Oh, is I'm, that I'm right? A boy. Is it on Twitter? Is it private message or direct message? No, it's, it's direct message, oh, but okay. but I, I grew up in a, an era, Liam, where private message was a very common way of saying it. Are you ready to wrap up? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. John Singleton, still a very interesting director, uh, So, and I, I am extremely curious to d- delve into his filmography in a lot more detail. We'll be back very soon with another John Singleton classic. Uh, good night, everybody. Night.